Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. We're going to be reading Acts 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what, to do, what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So, this story is so important to Luke that he puts it in Acts three times. On three different occasions, we hear the story of Saul's conversion. This is the only time that Saul himself, who will become Paul, isn't telling it himself. And so, First of all, we should take note of that. This is a very important story. It is very arguable, now hear what I'm saying, it's arguable that Paul is responsible for more conversions than Jesus. Let me explain, I don't mean Holy Spirit. I simply mean Paul's influence on the church, on theology, and on history is incomprehensible. And so it's such a significant thing, even Luke knew this, that he, he re- repeats the story three times. But every time he repeats it, there's different information given to you. It's not always the exact same story. And some people, more cynical, will look at it and say, oh, it must be, maybe there's lies here. That's why he doesn't mention it at one time, but he mentioned something here. But that is not what's happening. What is happening is something that is called telescoping. Now, let me use an example of why we could have three different stories, one story that's always the same, but three different accounts of it. And I'll use an example from my own life. So imagine this is a typical day. 
or a morning in my life. I'm going to put that slide up. Is it up there? Oh, it is. So imagine I wake up, I shower, I eat, I make a phone call, I tidy the house, I pay some bills, and then I'm in a coffee meeting or something. Normal day. Now, if Sarah calls me or shows up and says, hey, what'd you do all day? What I'm not going to tell her is everything. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to think, what does she want to know? Because she certainly doesn't want to know everything. She knows I woke up. Right? That's obvious. So what she'll want to know is this. She'll want to know, I tidied the house and paid the bills. <laughs> she doesn't care if I ate. This is evidence I ate. She knows it. So that's what she wants to know. So I leave out the other things. But if, if, if two minutes later I get a phone call from the police and they say, hey, somebody was murdered at the church. What did you do all day? You know what I'm going to tell them? I made a phone call and had a meeting. I have, I have witnesses. And they're going to want, see the story will change. It's the same story, but I'm going to emphasize different parts depending on the audience that I'm speaking to. And so we have here Luke trying to speak about this story. And then we have Paul in chapter 22 trying to defend himself and in chapter 26. Now when he's defending himself, we'll get there. And it's good and right that if you want to get a holistic picture of Paul's conversion, you take all three of those accounts and his letters and try to piece together the full story. But we're not going to do that today. And the reason we're not is because good scholars don't always do that. Because what good scholars do is they say, why did Luke only tell us what he told us here? It's okay to bring the other things in. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's also a good and right time to say, why is this all he told us at this point? And that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to stay within that, this one story and not take other things. Because if you look at just this one, it's pretty fascinating what's going on. And what we see is it is a conversion story. And we see that... Paul, or Saul, isn't really the hero. It's God. And God particularly as the overcomer. And we're going to try to see that. And we see as an overcomer what God does with every believer, every Christian at some point. If you're not a Christian, you won't have experienced these. And if you're a Christian and you haven't, then start thinking about why and what's going on. Because for everybody, he will break in, he will break through, and then he'll build. And we'll walk through those in this story. Okay. First, he breaks in. As usual, let's start in a weird place. Let's start with a Spanish monk named Tomás de Torquemada. If you know your history, you know who Torquemada is. He was a, a Dominican friar who befriended, uh, when he was young, he met a young princess named Isabella. And they become friends, and she eventually becomes the queen with her husband Ferdinand, who he sets them up together. And he then becomes the confessor and the confidant of this couple, the queen and king of Spain. So when the pope calls out and says, hey, we're looking for some people, because we want our monarchs, all of our kings in Europe, to start thrusting out all the heretics. Let's get rid of anyone who's not a Catholic. Let's boot them out of the country. What they, what they do is they say, I got the perfect guy, Torquemada. So they call on Torquemada, and he becomes an inquisitor, and eventually becomes the grand inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition, which you may have heard the Spanish Inquisition before. And Torquemada is incredibly zealous. He is not just zealous, but he's brutal. He's brutal. He's uh, very creative. He exceeds all the other inquisitors of other nations and even within Spain to become especially brutal. He has things like the auto de fe, which is, um, auto de fe means uh, act of faith. And the idea is, if, you are, if you're not a Christian, then you have a chance here to confess that you're not a Christian and repent. And then maybe, but probably not, you'll survive. But otherwise, you're burned at the stake. You're burned to death, alive. And not just, even if you don't, if, you, if, you, if he found out or somebody ratted on their neighbor that they became a Christian, but it was utter coercion, you know, his wife made him, then he would find them, and they'd, at very least they'd have to put a mark or a patch on their, their clothing that had a snake or flames or a serpent on it. 
And there's all sorts, and I won't do it here, but all sorts of ingenious, in a very bad way, tortures. So he eventually kills, well, the estimates range, but anywhere between 40,000 were expelled from Spain and from two to 10,000 were killed. We're not sure how many. So at this, it's reported that near the end of his life, when he was asked about it, he said, I'm guilty of only one crime, that of being too merciful. So he's a, he's a brutal man, and he is a zealot. Now, what you see here and what Luke is trying to make you see is Saul is the Torquemada of his day. 1,500 years early. And we know he's doing it. And it's not just that Saul wouldn't have known Torquemada, but you know who he would have known? Phineas in, in Numbers. If you don't remember Phineas, and uh, Elijah. Or more recently in Jewish history, a guy named Mattathias Maccabee, who leads a revolt. All three of them felt and were called, they, well, Maccabees was not scriptural, but the others in scripture are told that their job is to rid the land of heretics. So it's very possible Saul sees himself at this point as a self-styled crusader for God. Don't all crusaders think they're doing God's will? So he's powerful, he's very passionate. And we know Luke wants us to see him this negatively at this point, because he's only been mentioned four times at this point in all scripture. And the first time we're told he's standing witnessing Stephen dying and everybody's laying their coats down. In other words, so I can get a good throw, so I can't throw well with my my cloak on. I'm going to lay it at Saul's feet. Hey, watch this for me. And he's approving, saying, yeah, I'll hold this. You go get him. So that's the first thing. Then we hear he actually, in chapter 8, verse 1, that he approved of the murder. Because it wasn't an execution, because they weren't allowed that. It was a murder. It was a mob. It was a lynch. A lynch job on Stephen. And then two verses after that, in chapter 8, verse 3, we're told he's gone now from, from just observing to now he's going house to house in Jerusalem and dragging people out and arresting them. And so he is now, and again, that, the, the wording that Luke uses is that he's doing the same thing that in the Psalms, boars do to vineyards, trampling them and destroying them. So as if that isn't bad enough, the fourth time we hear about him is here in, in verse 1 of chapter 9. He's breathing threats and murder. He has now taken his inquisition on the road out of Israel and into a foreign land. Damascus is very near Israel. It's only a, it's a 30-minute drive. It's 30 miles or something. But, um, but it's outside of outside of Israel. So he gets the okay from the priests with letters saying, hey, he can walk into any synagogue, and you as a, as a rabbi at that synagogue, give up anybody you have. This guy has our authority. So he and he's so brutal at this point that commentators are from, from history on are unanimous that this is what we're meant to think of him as being pretty brutal and pretty violent. John Calvin, 500 years ago, says he's depicted as a wild and ferocious beast. John Stott, more wild animal than a human being. And even Paul in chapter 26, which I said I wasn't going to do, but I'm going there, will say of himself that he was in a raging fury. That he, so he admits it. This is a man who is on a rampage. We know that much. Now, as he takes it to Damascus, Damascus is outside the country, about 217 kilometers from Jerusalem, so a seven-day trip on foot, roughly. And, when he, and we know this place was a good trading center, Damascus. It wasn't super big, but it had a really big Jewish population. And the reason we know that is because historians at the time tell us that 10,000 to 17,000 Jews were killed in a massacre. So if it had that many Jews in that little town, it was a pretty big hub. So it makes sense that Paul is now going to this place as his first stop to try to weed out the Christian problem in the, in, in the, in the empire. Now, on the road, however, of course, everything changes. And what happens on the road is 
he, three things happen to him. He is blinded, he is loved, and he is rescued. So the first point will be our longest. They're not all going to be this long. So three things happen. So the first thing that happens to Saul is he's blinded. Now why does God blind him? What's the purpose? And I can think of at least four things to say. The first one is, and this is purely symbolic. From a literary perspective, it's really poetic that the man who is spiritually blind is now physically blind. So in that sense, it makes perfect, it's harmonious, makes sense. The second thing is powerful. God has to break in on the zealous because zeal is powerful. I mean, just open, just look online. Look online. There's crusaders for everything right now. And how do you break that, that zeal? You can't, but God can. And the only way sometimes to overcome them, same thing is in situations where somebody is always is in a panic, is sometimes by greater show of force. Something that will rouse them and get their attention. And so he sees this light. We don't know. We're never told in any of the accounts if this is the glory of God shining or if it's just God saying, wake up, like to shock him into it. We know it does make him blind. That much we know. And so it breaks the spell that his anger has on him. That much we see. So it's poetic, it's powerful, but it's also a surrender. See, the power got his attention, but the blindness drove him to his knees because it's only when he is blinded that we then find out, as God says to Ananias, you'll find him praying because he's shocked by the power. But then three days in blindness, you become humble pretty quick because you're no longer the man you were or the person you were. And he becomes weaker, He becomes he's now at the... At the in fact, he's not only forced into helplessness, but when he is told, seemingly, as, as, he tell, as God says to Ananias, that he's going to need a Christian to heal him, he is not only now helpless, but he's at the, very, at the mercy of the people he was there to hunt and kill. And so the only way for him to get there was he needed to be forced to be humble. He wasn't doing it of his own. We can talk all day about free will. His free will did nothing to drive him to God. Nothing at this point. More to say on that in a minute. Next, it's the only way to give him sight. The irony is the only way that he was able to see that it was Jesus he was persecuting is when he was blind. Because we actually don't hear in this passage that he sees Jesus at all. In your community groups, you'll talk about that. All we hear is he's blinded, and then he opens his eyes only after the fact, but he doesn't, there's nothing that says he sees Jesus, but he hears him. And he only comes to know the real extent of what he is doing when he's blind. And he needed that to happen. And so God breaks in and blinds him. But the second thing he does, which is I think maybe the most beautiful part of this whole passage, maybe not, it's close, is he, the way he loves him. When, when You've heard this said many times if you've attended Redeemer for any length of time. When, when words are doubled in Hebrew or Greek, it's, a, it's an emphasis. Because they don't say very and super. You know, it's like, I'm super excited. In Hebrew, you just say excited, excited. And so when, when God shows up and he says, Saul, Saul, Absalom, Absalom, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Mary, Mary, and so on. When that happens, it's, there's a heavy emotion, but something even more incredible than just doubling of the word is happening here. When At the start of this passage, when Luke tells us that Saul is on a rampage, he uses, and we can put this, the, the slide up, he uses the word saulos in Greek. He calls him saulos, He's, which makes sense because Luke is writing in Greek to a Greek audience. But when Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The word is in Aramaic. Why? And it's not the only time he's done this. In the, the resurrection accounts in John 20, when Mary is at the tomb and she thinks she's talking to the gardener, 
And then she, until Jesus says, Mary. What's interesting is in that very same chapter, John does the same thing. Mary is Maria in Greek. But in, he, in Aramaic, it's Miriam. And so John, two seconds earlier, two verses earlier, says Mar- Maria. But when, jo- when Jesus says Mary, it's not the same word. He says Miriam. What's happening? He is speaking to them, in, as, the tra- as the missionaries would say, in their heart language. Listen, nobody knows and says your name like your mom. My mom has passed away, but I'll tell you, that Portuguese lady, Carlo, Carlo, that way, that just, nobody says it like that. In fact, I think I told you, I used to hear it in my dreams, because she would wake me up for school, and I would be halfway sleeping, halfway awake, and I'd be you know, up to bat at Yankee Stadium, and over the loudspeaker, I'd hear, Carlo, Carlo. Like, ah! Anyway, <laughs> side note, that was not in the notes. <laughs> but you see, when Jesus shows up, he speaks to you, to you to the name that is yours, to the name you know, the one you recognize. He's not just using some random name. So it's fascinating to me that all the gospel writers do this, that when Jesus speaks, they always keep it in Aramaic, it seems. And so he's doing that here. Because Saul was not only stopped, but at that moment, when he hears Saul, 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 Saul in, in Aramaic, he is being not just stopped in his tracks, but he's beginning to see himself. Because as we have to realize as Christians, or as, as human beings, in fact, in Canada we have to know this, you cannot claim your identity apart from God. If you do not know who God is, you cannot know who you are. Because he made you. And so, you cannot know. And Saul, at that moment, thinks he is serving God until he hears his name and he realizes, I've been persecuting him all this time. And so, this is an act of love. He could have crushed Saul. We know that. He doesn't crush Saul. At that moment, Saul knows because he has met his maker. And there's this wonderful passage in his book that won the Academy, or Academy Award, uh, the Pulitzer Prize in 1975, a woman named Annie Dillard. And um, she has had a tortured relationship with Christianity. I don't think she's a Christian anymore. She's 78 or 80, so there's still hope. Um, maybe she's listening, Annie? Probably not. And she wrote this, this book, and it's about her experiences walking through the Roanoke Valley in Virginia. And it's just her reflecting. And at one point, she sees something that stops her in her tracks. And here is what she says. It was less like seeing than like being, seen, for the first time, seen, knocked breathless by a powerful glance. I was still ringing. I had, my, had been my whole life a bell and never knew it until that, at that moment I was lifted and struck. And Saul, at that moment, she, she didn't know what she was until in that moment she was lifted and struck. In the same way, Saul thought he was helping God, thought he was serving God, until that moment when he was arrested on the road, lifted up, and struck. Struck blind in his case, but nonetheless, he was used finally as he was meant to be used, because he had met his maker. So he is loved, he's blinded, and then lastly, he is saved. And here's this Just fascinating passage, this part to me. God breaks in on Saul. You'll notice, and I'm not trying to, I have to show the paradox here. He does, what he doesn't say to Saul is, Saul, Saul, I'm giving you the chance to accept me as Lord and Savior. He doesn't welcome his opinion at this point. I'm not saying God never does, I'm not bringing that. At this point in history, all he says is, Saul, you're persecuting me, now go. There's no invitation to faith. It's, you're obeying now. That's it. You're mine. It's a, it's a taking 
of Saul in some way. And, you know, there's all these a few examples of this. C.S. Lewis, when he becomes a Christian, and C.S. Lewis is not, uh, it's pretty fair in this regard, but he says in his book, Surprised by Joy, when he becomes a Christian, no, don't go there yet. We'll get there. So in this, when he's, what he's saying when he became a Christian, he uses a bunch of metaphors and similes, and he says, I was like a fish being hunted by a, pro, a great angler, fisherman. Or I was a mouse being pursued by a cat. I was a fox being chased by hounds. And maybe my favorite one that he says is, it's like I was playing chess with a far superior player, and I was increasingly moved into disadvantageous positions until I was forced to concede. And he says, and the last one, he says, I was like I was a man who was being forced into a suit of armor as if I couldn't move. And he said, then I finally chose him. And then he qualifies it by this line. And he says, but, put it up there. I say I chose, yet it didn't really seem possible to do the opposite. See the, see the tension here between choice and free will. I don't even like the word free will. I think it's a useless word, to be honest. But do you see the tension? And then it goes, let me go even further. John Stott, speaking about this very passage, has this to say. It's a bit longer, but it's worth it. What stands out from the narrative is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. Saul did not decide for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. The evidence for this is indisputable. Divine grace does not trample on human personality. Rather, the reverse, for it enables human beings to be truly human. It is sin which imprisons, it is grace which liberates. The grace of God so frees us from the bondage of our pride, prejudice, and self-centeredness as to enable us to repent and to believe. And so what we're seeing in here is this incredible mystery where Paul, in this particular case, he's not given an option. And does his, is his free will overridden? You can take that up with God. Here's what I do know. He's not given an option, and he obeys. And he obeys willingly. That's what we know. But God grabs him. You see, Paul is not... We can't look at the story and say, well, Paul would have chosen him eventually. By what evidence can you say that? What evidence can we say that? You can't. In fact, I feel like Luke is trying to make it so you know and you can't say that. The point, at least in this instance, is God took him from his life and put him in a new one. That much it looks... I don't see how we can debate that here. The hound of heaven has set his sight on his own and he will have them. So he's blinded by the holiness of God, loved by the burning love of God, and saved by the unmerited grace of God. And that is true for all of us. Every one of us, if you're a Christian, have at some point realized he is holy and you are not. And if you haven't, if you can stand before a perfect, burning, holy God and not be falling on your face at some point, you may not have met him. And I'm not, it's not an insult. That's simply what Scripture tells us anytime anyone meets him. They fall. And then his love. You would have felt that love all at once burning, as Martin Luther would say. Burning in your salvation. And then you are saved by the unmerited grace. Say what you want about if you choose him or not. That's your business. But I know this, you didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it, one way or the other. And this is what we see with Paul. He is blinded, he is loved, and he is saved. God has broken in on Paul. Paul did not, Saul, I'm going to use that interchangeably, forgive me. Saul did not break in on God. Quite the opposite. Now, it's not just that, he also breaks through. And when he breaks through, here we're going to take a, we're going to take a short excursus here and look at Ananias. Because Ananias is, I think, sometimes the forgotten child here. Um, he's sometimes seen as just a tool, a pawn being used to, in, the, in the story of, of Saul. But I think there's more happening here. So here's what we know. 
um, if the story is going to continue, God has to not just break in on Saul, but he has to break through the fear of Ananias. Because he, there's two people in the story. And if there's no Ananias, if he doesn't obey, Saul's going to be blind for a while. At least that's the impression we get. So God, God then turns his attention to Ananias. He, we know, here's what we know about Ananias. He's a Jewish convert. He's a Jew who is probably attending the synagogue, or one of the synagogues, Paul's about on his way to go investigate. We know that news travels very fast. Because Luke seems to say that Paul gets these letters in Jerusalem and heads right over to Damascus, seven days journey. So even if it took 10 days, that means the news of Paul's coming, of Saul's coming, traveled faster than Saul. And it got to him because he knows not only that Saul's coming and his reputation, but he knows specifically the fact that he has letters from the high priest. So news has traveled fast and he is rightly a little uneasy about going to see Saul. But here's one beautiful thing that may get missed. Maybe you saw it as I was reading it. When Saul encounters God for the first time in Jesus, what does he say? Who are you? When Ananias hears God, what does he say? Here I am. You see something right away that Saul is being sent to not just some run-of-the-mill Christian necessarily, but at very least we know he's a faithful man. Somebody who recognized the voice of God when Saul, the brilliant man, didn't. So we know that much. And he's concerned. He knows that he's meeting the Grand Inquisitor. And when, he sa- when God says, as faithful as Ananias is, when he hears, you're going to go see Saul, he's like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> this is like, this is Torquemada here. I'm not prepared to be burned at the stake. I'm not prepared to die. I've, have you heard of what he's done? And he recounts his fear and his concern. And here's what is wonderful. God doesn't do what you would expect. You would expect him to do what he does to Joshua and people in the Old Testament. Be strong and courageous. I will be with you. Right? He doesn't do it. In fact, he seems to not even address the question or the concern. His response is, go. (laughs) For he has chosen an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And the very next line is, so Ananias went. He departed. He goes. Now why? What is it that overcomes his fear in that moment? Well, it's right there. This is maybe the most remarkable little thing. And this poor Ananias, I'm sure he's not preached nearly enough because he's just this, he's, he's a vehicle, right, for, for Saul's story. But at first, 30 seconds earlier, he was concerned about his personal safety and his self-preservation. But then 30 seconds later, he's willing to go, knowing that nothing has changed. He's still just as much at threat. So why does he go? The only thing, only new information he has is Saul's going to take the gospel to the world. So you have to go. And something beautiful about the gospel, if you're a Christian, this has happened to you or it's going to and it's on its way, it's happening as we speak. You are in a position now where you become self-forgetful. Where now Ananias is no longer concerned with his self-preservation. Now he's more worried about, if I don't do this, the gospel may not go out. If this is, what God, if this is God's man to take the gospel, not just to the, the Gentiles, but kings and to Israel as well, I have to go. And so we see Ananias responding with what I, I don't, it's not belittling it. It's simple faith. He's, he's, he's so satisfied, so gracious, so uh, gracious meaning, so, so filled with gratitude towards being saved that he is more concerned that you and I hear the gospel than his welfare now. Because nothing else has changed. It's not like he's been given any assurance of his survival. And he's, yet he's moved. And the only thing he's moved by is this mission that God is on. And it's absolutely beautiful. And we know that Saul is not a fool. I mentioned when we talked about Stephen that there's evidence in Saul's letters and Saul uh, when he becomes Paul. 
and later on in his testimony that he was moved by Stephen's speech and the, and the, the murder of him. And I wonder if he's also moved by this faith and this selflessness, because in Philippians 3.8, he's going to say, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. And that's a little bit like what Ananias is doing. He doesn't count his life any longer as valuable compared to the possibility of this thing that he's experienced being experienced by others. And so the gospel has made him selfless somehow. So after breaking in, God then sets about on all of us. He breaks in first, and then he sets about breaking through those sins that keep you from being obedient to him. And what, we all have different ones. Maybe it's fear. A lot of us have fear. And it may be slow, right? It may, you're, you may not see movement very quickly. And, and it's sometimes very disheartening as a Christian to think, am I still fighting this? Am I still struggling with this sin? All we can do, and I'll lean on a whole amalgam of different people I've read over the years, is Christ comes to you as this incredible sculptor, and he is hammering you with a chisel, and the blows of the chisel hurt. But sure enough, he is going to free the shape. He is going to free you from those things. It may take longer, it may, take, it may be quicker, but he will finish the work he started. And he see, we see it being finished, at least in part, there in Ananias. So he breaks in, and he, or breaks through, then he breaks in, and now, finally, he builds. And This, is very, this will be a short one, but it's, it's beautiful. There's... Um, this throwaway line, I just thought of this morning, from uh, the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And it's, I won't go into the context of the book, it doesn't matter. But the line is, did I put it up here? The Oscar Wilde? There he is. The dawn is remaking the world in its antique pattern. And what he means, think, think now if you happen to have a, a beautiful view of the sunrise at your home or, or somewhere you've been. When the light comes... It creeps and stretches its fingers over the lawn, over the landscape, and it transforms the green into gold. And eventually it hits the gray sky and turns it purple and orange and yellow and all these different colors. And so the dawn transforms everything it touches. And so what we're seeing here in Saul's life in these few seconds, really, and maybe days if you count the time in darkness here, you're seeing the gospel and grace creeping across his life, first winning him for himself. For, for his self, God's self, then making him a son. In fact, you see him here be going from wolf to sheep, from sheep to shepherd, because he's going to be a shepherd. That's, he's the shepherd in some ways of all of us, in a great way, in a, in a way, not Christ-like shepherd, but you know what I mean. And so we see grace all through this passage, creeping its fingers, stretching across the life of Saul, as he's done for all of our lives entirely. And so... Here's this beautiful thing that happens at the end. Finally, these two people meet. Saul and Ananias meet. And on one hand, you have Ananias, who's probably, even though he's resolved, a little uneasy. I would imagine he's a man. He's probably a little nervous about meeting Saul. But I wonder how nervous Saul may have been. Because now he's blind. He's helpless. His papers do him no good now. And he's about to meet a man who knows that he's been killing and persecuting his friends. So is it possible that Saul himself felt a little concern, or at least concerned that he would meet a cool, if not hostile, reception with Ananias. And so these two people come. One terrified that Saul might kill him. Maybe not terrified anymore. Maybe resolved. I don't, we're not told. And then you have Saul, who is concerned as well. But when they meet, you see the most beautiful thing. The very first words Ananias says is, brother. The very first thing. Understand, 
Ananias could have behaved like Jonah. Fine, I'll do it. But remember when Jonah, we preached it. Remember when Jonah shows up at Nineveh? How long his sermon is? Like five words. Repent, he's coming. That's it. It's almost like Jonah's just going through the motions. Ananias could have just showed up and said, get over here, I've got to pray for you. I don't like it. Wish you wouldn't do this, but I'll do it. How many times have you and I grudgingly worked? You don't have to answer that. Lots. Lots of times we've done it. Lots of times. As, a, as Christians, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to love people in your church. And when they're struggling, you sometimes want to think, I know, because we all have that schadenfreude in us. Don't we think he's getting what he deserves? We do it. I get it. Now, Ananias could have done that, but he doesn't. Rather than just say, I'm supposed to pray for you, so get over here. Instead, he says, brother. And he welcomes this persecutor as a full member of the body, as a brother. And here's what's interesting. He calls him not Saulos in Greek, he calls him Saul. He also speaks to him in Aramaic, which you think is normal. But remember, Luke is right. If I'm writing you a story of my life, what I don't do is tell you how my parents spoke Portuguese to each other. I'll tell you in English because you won't understand. So when he keeps it, it's interesting. So here we have Ananias doing that, but we also have Saul. Saul hearing this. It must have caught him the way I imagine Isaiah feels when he meets God and knows he deserves to die. Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And he knows he's, but he, should, he should be killed, and he sees the angel coming with the coal, which is fire and death and destruction, it should be. But when he comes and presses it to the lips of, of Isaiah, he says, your sins have been taken away. So a man who thinks and then knows he deserves death is given mercy. And the very next words out of his mouth are, here I am, send me. Because he knows he deserves death, but he gets grace. So when Paul knows he deserves worse, but then he is received, I can't help but think this changes his heart. Because we see the evidence of it from here on in his life. Not a perfect man. I think he's pretty clear to, obey, to, to admit that. But what happens here is we see the same thing in our lives. God pursues us. He dies and died to win us. He breaks in, he then overcomes our weakness, and then he plugs us, in, plugs us into a people, into a church. And this is why we value membership here. This is why. And I know people don't like it all the time. You know why? Because when we hear about things like we heard today about people passing away, who's here for these people? You. When God turns to the disciples, when Jesus, when the disciples say, Lord, we have given up everything for you, what does he say? Anyone who's given up family and home, etc., for me, Will, have, will not fail to gain 100 times in heaven and on earth. Heaven, that's God's business. He can reward you in heaven. I don't know, I, I'm not, unless I'm in charge of the, uh, that, that part of work, I'm, I, I don't do it. But here, people, when they become Christians, lose family. They drift away from people. Their kids may move away across the country, and now they're seniors and they're alone and they're lonely. They have lost family, but they have gained 300 of us. We are the family. We are the ones to rally around. This is God setting Saul in a family. And so why do we have membership here? Listen, I don't get a commission. I don't get, the, the elders don't say, hey, for every member you get an extra round of golf. It's not a bad idea, elders. But <laughs> No, that's not it. It's because we want to bind God's nature in Acts is he added to their number daily. Not just he saved them and they went off and watched you know, some speaker online. No, they bind, he sends them into the church, and he's doing that here to Saul. And so we'll close here. Christians, you say he has saved you. Now your role is to become a builder 
a restorer, to love the church, and to welcome the enemies. There may be people in this church that you need to welcome back. I don't know. Maybe in your family. But that's what we're called to do. He has reconciled you to make you a reconciler. And if you're a skeptic, just look at your life. Every Christian can say now, we look back and say, gosh, the hound of heaven was on everywhere, wasn't he? Everywhere. He was there when I was a baby, when I was a kid, in the house he put me into, everything. And if you're a skeptic, look at your life. You know you feel like you're meant for more than just to die as a cosmic death and to be forgotten in the, in the ether. You know it. And don't you feel him closing in? The fact that you're here hearing this now is him closing in on you. And I'm sorry, he wants to devour your life, but it will set you free. Let's pray.